How's everyone doing? It's Sunday evening, 7.48 p.m. January 23rd, 2022. Welcome in. Welcome and listen in to Dr. Rashad Ritchie's YouTube channel. The Indisputable, that's what he calls his YouTube, The Indisputable. This episode is titled 133 Felony Cases Dismissed After Dirty Cop Caught, 133 and counting felony cases dismissed after dirty cop caught. This was in the Bronx, and we know that's New York. Okay, thank you for listening and supporting. Appreciate you all so much. And as I have said before, corrupt cops cost you money, they cost you reputation. They cost you safety. Everybody should be on the same page as it relates to getting rid of corrupt police officers. Let me bring your attention to the Bronx DA and an NYPD detective. More than 130 convictions that relied on the testimony of former undercover NYPD detective Joseph Franco. Put up Joseph's picture, please. Joseph Franco were thrown out by a Bronx judge on Thursday, the latest in a wave of dismissals tied to this disgraced cop. Now, there's a lot of background to this story. Prosecutors have alleged that Franco lied in official records when he worked as an undercover narcotics detective in Manhattan in 2017 and 2018. Franco claimed that he had witnessed several drug deals, but video evidence later debunked all of it. Bronx Supreme Court Justice David Lewis granted the motion to drop the felony cases against 133 defendants who were indicted between 2011 to 2015. Okay? Do you realize how even a misdemeanor charge would turn your life upside down. These are 133 felony convictions. These lives have been turned upside down, ripped from the inside out because of one man. Now, we're going to focus on this one man because he's a horrible individual. <laughs> but let's not forget that he exists in an ecosystem of criminal justice that allows him to operate this way with basic immunity. It was luck that he got caught. <laughs> luck. He had been doing this for years and would have been doing it today if it had not been for the video that provided contrary evidence to what he put down in writing. <laughs> Franco, who was fired by the NYPD eventually in 2020, <laughs> is awaiting trial in Manhattan on charges that he framed innocent people by lying about observing them dealing drugs. The Bronx District Attorney's Conviction Integrity Bureau launched
launched a review of the ex-cops cases after he was indicted in April 2019 for perjury, official misconduct, and other charges. Now, now I have to remind everyone the irony of a district attorney's office having a unit called the Conviction Integrity Unit. The reason why they have the Conviction Integrity Unit is because their convictions have historically lacked integrity. Understand why they have this unit or this bureau inside of their department. We did not want to dismiss, dismiss or vacate out of hand all cases he was involved in. We investigated those that hinged on his testimony and sworn statements. Bronx Court District Attorney uh, Darcel Clark said in a statement, Franco's compromised credibility suggests a lack of due process in the prosecution of these defendants, and we cannot uh, stand behind these convictions. It also indicates a lack of due process as it relates to how in the hell y'all prosecute people. Because there's no way that this man should have gotten away with destroying this many lives. And there's more. At least 257. Here's your, here's your next number. At least 257 Bronx convictions that depended on Franco's sworn statements and testimony before a grand jury have already been dismissed. Already. <laughs> including 133 tossed on Thursday. <laughs> Another 250 convictions are under review, oh. meaning the number of Bronx cases tied to this one man that end up getting dropped could hit 500 felony convictions in one damn jurisdiction. Oh. The DA's office said it could not provide details about the dismissed cases as they are now sealed. That's to cover their ass. Please understand why they're doing that. Dozens of convic uh, convictions linked to the ex-cop have already been tossed uh, in Manhattan and Brooklyn. Uh, so you have this jurisdiction. They are what we call a cooperating jurisdiction. You have this one narcotics officer. Do you not think anybody, do you think nobody knew this? <laughs> Do you think no one was aware that this cop was dirty, planting evidence or whatever the hell else he was doing, lying on official reports? No, of course they knew. Of course somebody knew. This is a culture that allows him to violate policy over and over again because culture eats policy alive any day of the week. Not only did he survive in that culture, he thrived in it. And it was only when his negligence and corruption was brought to the forefront of the masses. And that's why it's important that media, you're included in that because you have the power to, you have the power to publish. It's called social media. Media in all forms is a great light to darkness. And darkness is a great coward. Darkness can't fight light, it never does. It flees when there's light. It doesn't give light any fight. But you have to expose it. You have to be willing to be the light in those dark places. And that's the reason why this cop has been exposed. But remember, if the George Floyd Policing and Accountability Act would have been law, guess what? There would have been a national federal database that would have shown you all the complaints on that particular cop or connected to that department. But we don't have that. That's too much transparency for the people we pay for. J.R. Jackson, thoughts? So this starts with 
as you mentioned, accountability. So what is it that the police in this situation are looking to? You talked about the conviction and integrity unit, which exposes and points out that they know these things happen. And is this just this one crooked bad cop? Because they like to say there's just one bad apple. So if there's just one bad apple that's, that's, that's responsible for this many cases that have to get thrown out, reviewed, looked over again, he's the only one? Are we sure? And why should the citizenry care or think that he's the only one? So, okay, if we see this one cop that does these types of things, shouldn't the rest of society, at least either people who are policed by this particular department, shouldn't they assume that every cop will do this? If you think that's a crazy thing to assume, then think about their approach. If they see young minorities committing a crime, do you think that they assume, hey, I think another young minority will commit that same crime? In fact, if I see a young minority that looks anything like that doesn't look anything like the one that we've seen commit a crime, we should assume that they will. We know that's how racism, we know that's how profiling works, and we know the police officers have been doing that since the beginning of policing. So, I mean, stop and frisk anybody, you know, in case we forgot that part. There's profiling that is done based off of how you look. Why can't the citizenry see this officer, see how you've admitted that he's done these things because you're taking back all these convictions that I'm sure they don't want to have to take back? Shouldn't we assume that they all do it based off of the way that you approach policing us? Why can't it be the same way? But if we say, hey, we got to change the culture, we have to defund, we have to change the way that we police in this country, they go, look at you, acting like the police officers are the bad guys. You act like the citizens are the bad guys. And in fact, you have the power of the gun and, and, and handcuffs and jail behind you to do that. Um, and if this is not just in Bronx, really fast, uh, uh, doctor. In Torrance, California, Southern California, a suburb of L.A., they had to throw out 1,800 cases. I'm sorry, they were reviewing 1,800 cases. They had to throw out hundreds other because there was text messages that were found between police officers talking about racism, yep. homophobia, uh, anti-Semitism, and posting pictures of hanging black men and saying, let's go hang with the homies. That's across the country. On the other ends of these two liberal bastions that I keep hearing conservatives talk about in policing and the way that they beat down and profile minorities. And then after they have to throw out all these convictions, are we going to change anything? If they don't want to change it, that means they're just trying to get us to shut up long enough for them to go back to work. That's right. Well said, brother. They would like us to kick the can down the road. Uh, they will bring back these practices. Uh, the system will excommunicate individuals that cause them problems, but it doesn't solve the cultural issue that we're trying to transform. I know we talk reform a lot, and I'm not as much as a reformist as it relates to policing. I'm a guy that says replacement. So while some talk reform, I talk replacement. But I truly, you need both working uh, hand in glove in order to get this thing under control. Join me as we follow the profit with David Grosso, profit as in money. Um, podcast, also the CEO of Bold TV. He's a moderate conservative. Typically, we have pretty decent conversations. Uh, David, good day, brother. Welcome. Always great to be in the bullpen. Let me have it. <laughs> well, let's discuss a few items. So uh, we're going to chop it up about the SCOTUS decision as it relates to vaccine protocols in America. Uh, I don't want to presume what you know, believe about that particular topic. So if you would give us your sentiment and I'll respond. Well, I think when we're dealing with things like the Supreme Court, it gets really, really boring fast because it has a lot more to do with law than practicality, right? And I think the Supreme Court viewed this in a way that many Americans view this, is that this 
decision by the Biden administration to have OSHA do a vaccine mandate for employers over 100 people, vaccine or testing mandate, to be completely clear, there was a testing loophole in it, was beyond the scope of OSHA. So whether you agree that most people should be vaccinated, whatever, regardless of your stances on vaccines, it seems like it was overreaching having OSHA create this mandate for employers over 100 people. Now, of course, what's really interesting about this decision is that they did hold up the mandate for any facility or organization that uses Medicaid or Medicare dollars or healthcare workers. So I, I personally think that was the right call legally to push through. Of course, that has nothing to do with my opinion regarding vaccination, and I don't want to come here and misrepresent that I am anything but fully vaccinated and boosted, etc. But as it pertains to the SCOTUS decision, it makes a lot of sense to me why it was a 6-3 to three decision. Yeah, it did fall along ideological lines, which the administration said it possibly could. And when pressed about that early on after this executive order, basically one of the responses from the White House was, well, by that time, you're going to have a lot more people vaccinated. So they were aware that this could possibly be shot down by the court. Now, I agree just fundamentally, I agree with the dissent. Uh, and not the majority ruling. And you know, the Supreme Court, they overturn themselves all the time. So just as yeah, easy as it went this way, <laughs> this time it could go the other way next time. So I agree with the dissent. And I, I agree with the dissent based on my reading of their summary of dissent. And I'm going to get into that in a moment. But it's interesting because while many on the right, and I'm glad you made clarity of this, many on the right are saying that mandates were declared unconstitutional and the Democrats lost. That's actually opposite of what the Supreme Court said. The Supreme Court said in their ruling that mandates are actually legal, that the federal government has the legal authority to mandate vaccinations. That's in the ruling. It's called a mixed ruling. And as you just mentioned, it upheld the element connected to healthcare facilities because of the federal connection to those healthcare facilities by way of money, uh, et cetera. One could make an extended argument that it should also apply um, outside of that because OSHA as the entity created by the federal government in 1970, got its power from the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, is a federal entity that, by the way, has the charge of handling safety issues, both health and hazard. That's actually in the statute, health and hazard, right? So here's why I'm at. One, it was never a vaccine mandate. It was a vaccine protocol. So not only did you have the seven-day test loophole, which the government should have paid for. I, I, for the life of me, I can't understand why they did not create subsidies for companies to pay for that. We can, we can agree on that much, Doc. Yeah, yeah for sure. They should have paid for that. Uh, so that was one uh, exemption. Then you had a religious exemption. You also had a philosophical difference exemption. And you had a medical exemption. So there was no mandate. But I don't think Democrats did a good job messaging the reality that this is not a mandated vaccine. Uh, so I, I get it. I'm wise enough in understanding the ruling to get why the conservatives ruled the way they did. I disagree with them, and I'm going to root my disagreement in law. Now, according to the law. Do you know your HIV status? When you do, you can take control of your sexual health. HIV self-tests give you the power to decide when and where. When OSHA was created by the U.S. Congress in 1970, it was created as an administrative body that could enact what's called administrative law. 
they were a regulatory agency. There's an internal bureaucracy they have to go through anytime there's something that lasts beyond a certain amount of time as far as a regulation, a new regulation is concerned. But they were created. They're constitutional. They're created from the powers of the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution. And they were created specifically to provide um, safe barriers as it relates to any health issues uh, at your workplace or chemical hazard issues at your workplace. My question to you is, based on the ruling that says, well, you know, OSHA really can't regulate health issues, even though it's said in the statute they can. The ruling was they really can't regulate health issues uh, at the workplace if the health issue is massive outside of the workplace. So basically what the Supreme Court was saying in the ruling is, you know, this was something that was more germane to the workplace only. OSHA would have authority here, but because it's not only germane to the workplace or primarily germane to the workplace, somehow they lose their authority to govern or create restrictions in the workplace. Does that make sense based on the statute to you? I, I think it does. I don't think COVID is an occupational hazard. So it's it's suggested in the name, right? OSHA, it's the first O. Sure. And really, you can catch COVID anywhere. And I think that's what had the most teeth. You're absolutely correct. You can catch COVID in a school or on the street. And it's really so fungible and widespread and really endemic at this point that it's really beyond the purview of OSHA. What's really interesting about this decision is that it's hard to break this down in a television soundbite that usually get 30 seconds. It is a mixed decision. No Nowhere in the decision did it say that employers can't uh, require vaccination. They can do that. Furthermore, the, even the conservative opinion specifically points to the power that the state and local governments have to regulate public health. It's completely within their purview. There's a lot of case law there. So if the state of California or New York or any other liberal states wants to do a vaccine mandate, it is completely within their power to do so. I think the big problem with this was twofold. There's some legal issues there, obviously, as you saw in the conservative decision 6-3 on, along ideological lines. But there's also practical problems. You mentioned one of them, which is, of course, that the testing would have been, the cost of that would have been incumbent on the businesses. Moreover, the other problem was enforcement. You know, I have a friend who works at a Fortune 1000 company, and he was dealing with enforcement of this rule that was allegedly going to come into effect very soon. And enforcement was basically impossible. Additionally, there was a, a testing loophole, as a lot of liberals like to call it. So really, in the end, it wasn't going to get exactly the goal that the Biden administration had in mind when they promulgated this rule. I think we have to focus more on the carrot instead of the stick. What is the benefit to people for getting vaccinated? What type of perks can we offer people? What type of penalties if some employers want to go ahead and you know incentivize their ranks to be vaccinated? And I think we have to remember one clear psychological thing beyond case law and beyond politics is that as more people get vaccinated, the people that are unvaccinated are actually going to dig themselves in. They're going to dig their heels in, and it's harder and harder to convince the unvaccinated to get vaccinated. And when you have mandates like this, especially during a labor shortage, especially, let's face it, Doc, 100 employees is a small business in today's world, in the yeah. age of Google, Facebook, Amazon, et cetera, right? Even the Young Turks is a small business, by the way, mm -hmm. in my opinion, because the, everything's so large now. 
I think it was unfair to regulate everyone the same way. And this is a quite a problem with a lot of policies that come out of Washington, the one size fits all. I think a lot of companies are going to have vaccine mandates anyway, as we're seeing, especially big tech. But in the end, it is an undue cost on our small businesses, which let's face it, with rising inflation, with labor shortages, the last thing they need is yet another strategic disadvantage to their bigger counterparts. You know, let me show you the places I agree and some of the places I disagree. Uh, so you and I agree on the fact that there should have been a subsidy to smaller businesses as it relates to testing kits because they would have had to put the bill uh, in order to make this happen. I think if the administration would have been uh, a little more proactive about that, you would not have seen as much pushback. You still would have seen significant pushback. And to your other point about the incentives, while this was going through the ranks of the court, they should have been co-creating incentives just in case it got overturned. For the life of me, I don't understand why they did not plan for it to be overturned and to have a process in place that would have given great incentive, which in the marketplace means great advantage in competition, would have given great advantage in competition uh, to make sure that there was a real incentive in order for them to continue uh, to make a protocol privately in those companies to vac uh, vaccinate. And also, one of the uh, one of the great uh, things that that companies say, you know, this happens when our people are vaccinated. We have less individuals who call out sick. We have uh, less pull on our insurance policy. So there are some actual bottom line benefits to corporations who act in good faith as it relates to a public health crisis. Um, so and, and to your point about the uh, companies being dealt with kind of one size fits all, you know, yeah, they were. Uh, and it was unfair. Now, if your company had 99 employees and under, uh, there was a different set of rules for you. But still, if your company had 105, 110 um, compared to a company that has, you know, 10,000, uh, that's a that's a different financial reality for those companies. So while I still disagree with the ruling as far as them saying that OSHA does not have the power to regulate, um, I do agree that more common sense and nuanced remedies should should have been in place in order to protect companies and workers. But let me ask you this question, because this is something that even the dissent did not bring up in their summary, which I thought would have been a great point for them to make. If the Supreme Court, if the conservatives are saying OSHA, even though they have the statutory authority to regulate hazard and health in workplaces, this does not fall under their um, jurisdiction because of how uh, you can catch COVID outside of the workplace. What can name what OSHA can regulate health wise that you can only catch at work and you cannot catch it anywhere else? I'm not exactly a legal scholar. I think it's a fair point. And I think with with legal issues, you can kind of argue back and forth. That's the whole yeah. point of the profession. I think I want to come back to something you said, Doc, because I think it's very insightful. And I think it's something we could agree on is that this administration doesn't seem to be making a lot of safe bets. They kind of go all into one strategy. And when it blows up in their face, they just kind of turn up empty handed. And I think it really endangers their mandate and it really endangers the Democratic majorities in Congress, because in the end, right? If you have a strategic constituency that is interested in seeing higher vaccination rates and you're pinning all of your resources on one decision that, surprise, surprise, was struck down by a 
clearly majority Supreme Court. We've all been living this, right? This is not a shocker, right? And we're going right. to see more conservative decisions come out of the Supreme Court, whether it's abortion, whether it's vaccine mandates. This is the reality of the Supreme Court, no matter whether you're liberal or conservative. What I see is an administration that really isn't making a lot of diversified bets. Like, what? what is the backup plan for this? And it doesn't seem to be a backup plan. Are we planning on having vaccine mandates for travel? Haven't heard of that anymore, right? I saw that at the border, they're going to require uh, migrants to be vaccinated. Very little press coverage right now. So it seems right now, not only does the administration have a PR problem, but they have a political strategy problem. Perhaps, Doc, you should consider joining the administration <laughs> because it seems like there's an enormous, just from a purely pragmatic point of view, talent and strategy deficit in that White House. And every day they start to resemble more the Trump administration where they're not really prepared for, for what comes next. From a Not from an ideological standpoint, but from a purely just strategy standpoint standpoint. What is your plan? What are you going to do next? And how are you going to ensure that the people who voted for you are getting what they wanted when they voted for you? Yeah, I actually think they should take some of your uh, get right juice uh, and drink it up. I actually agree with you that messaging has been one of the primary problems of Democrats uh, in particular. Republicans are very good at messaging, especially around lies. I mean, damn, they are masterful at messaging around particular moments and recreating what that moment actually meant in the moment and telling you that is something uh, something else. Uh, Democrats have a messaging problem uh, and there is some strategy element here that I can't, like I said, for the life of me, I cannot understand why they did not have a concurrent plan in place when this Supreme Court decision came down. Uh, brother, I appreciate you. You're, you're sensible. Um, I enjoy our conversations. It's not always about disagreement, all right? So brother, thank you for coming on the show. Always a pleasure, Doc. See you next time. See you next time, my friend. He's back. We got the dear professor, Alexander Salter, economics professor at Texas Tech University. Very smart guy. Has a lot of educational credentials. And we are going to chop it up about mask mandates in schools uh, and get into some of this inflation stuff happening in the country. Professor, we're Facebook friends now. Did you know that? We are Facebook friends. I'm very excited. You know, I accepted you because I knew you on the, you were going to be on the show and I didn't want to be rude. So I, <laughs> <laughs> so I accepted your free request. No, you're a good guy, man. You, you just misguided on some politics. Uh, but let's talk about your sentiment. I don't want to presume what you know or believe about, we'll start with mask mandates in K through 12 education. Uh, so share your sentiment with us. Sure. In brief, I don't think that mask mandates in K through 12 are very effective. I don't have any reason to think that they are particularly useful at stemming the spread of the virus. And to the extent that we roll those back, however, I want to make sure that we do that legally. It needs okay. to be done through the established legislative and executive processes. All right. Um, so there was a report that came out about a month ago that showed the effectiveness of schools that enforce the mask protocol. Now, while it does not eliminate the spread, it does decrease it based on uh, comparative data from school districts that simply do not have a mask protocol in place compared to school systems that do. So there's an effectiveness. Is it 100% effective? Of course not, right? You're still dealing with people who do not exist only in the context of a school system. They exist in the ecosystem of life. So they go home, they have a peer group, uh, they have parents, uh, they, they have, uh, you know, after school jobs, whatever it may be, 
they interact with other people. So you would agree, Professor, that having a mask policy inside of your school, while it does not stop, it does, in fact, reduce the spread of COVID-19, correct? Based on data. I'm sure there's some effect. I would tend to say that cloth masks are probably a little bit better than nothing, and 95s are better still. The question is, are they worth the cost? If we have kids constantly worrying about fiddling with their masks instead of paying attention and getting the most out of the learning environment, if we make teachers constantly monitor this to make sure that students are quote-unquote wearing the masks right, when you take into account the fact that now that we know children seem to be one of the least at-risk categories from any of the variants of COVID-19, I just don't think that the benefits of school mouse mandates outweigh the costs. We need to make sure that our children are getting the education that they need. They should be there to focus on school and not worry about these secondary requirements, especially after the last 18 months, which have been very hard on school children in particular. You brought up an interesting point, Professor, that I would like to challenge you on. You call children the least at risk. Who's the most at risk? Hi, I'm Sharmila. I'm a small business owner. This is what my business looked like before Salesforce, and this is after Salesforce. Also, people from the general population that have some other health problem. We usually call them comorbidities. All right. Do children interact with their grandparents or parents? Certainly. Do children interact? Okay. Mm -hmm. Do children interact with individuals that may have pre-existing conditions? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So I bring that point to your doorstep. Because we're not dealing with a health problem. We're dealing with a public health problem. We're not dealing with a health crisis. We're dealing with a public health crisis, which means all of our uh, policy should be implemented based on the public health concern rather than the individual concern of a particular person. And that is the difference between a public health crisis and a personal health crisis. So when you say, well, children are least affected That's fine if you're only talking about it in the context of a personal health issue, such as your personal medical doctor. But when you talk about it in a broader context of public health professor, you then have to include the reality that children touch things, that children interact with people, that children go homes where they have elderly uh, grandparents, parents, aunts and uncles, et cetera, that children interact with family members and friends that may have pre-existing underlying conditions. That is the reason you have policy. It's for the general public, not for the individual. Where am I wrong here? I think you're absolutely correct that no no man is an island. We understand that there's an issue about transmission. We understand that there's an issue about one person infecting other people, sometimes without even knowing it. What I want to fall back on, though, what I want to talk about is the fact that we know through several studies that schools just aren't super spreader events. So if we're serious about masking our kids when there doesn't seem to be major contagion happening at school, we should be even more on board with masking up everywhere all the time. But I think that we know that we're past that point in the pandemic. I think that we understand that that's not the optimal strategy. Maybe if everybody had resources to get an N95 and if maybe everyone was using them with medical grade filters, if everyone was using them perfectly, like a surgical team does in a hospital, maybe then we could talk about the benefits of widespread masking outweighing the cost. I just don't think we're there anymore. So let me say this from experience. So one, you're not correct on the super spreader uh, element. You do have school systems that, uh, that based on their testing, 
they were getting 20 to 30 percent positive rates and they, they had to shut the school down. That's considered a super spreader event anytime you're over 15 percent. So that has happened and that continues to happen even now. Uh, as far as the mask are concerned, I actually agree with you. I do think that we should continue the subsidies, the federal subsidies, to make sure K through 12 education, if you're going to meet in person, you have the proper mask attire and you can subsidize that to the general population because people are going to buy different masks based upon the information that they have and the resources they have available. Um, this to me is very simple. It's not complex. We make it complex. It's real simple. We believe that it was in the interest of good public health doctrine to vaccinate children and to mandate these vaccinations. Uh, we have been mandating vaccinations in the United States of America since 1850. In 1970, it became rule of law for all 50 states and the District of Columbia to mandate a plethora of vaccines for children, diphtheria, measles, mumps, etc. We accepted that as a public health issue, right? So it's interesting to me that individuals who have accepted that line of thinking to say, yes, school systems have the power and truly it is the right thing to do to mandate vaccinations for children are the same people saying that wearing a mask mandated by a school system is not proper. I don't understand the logic because both are public health policies and both are implemented or authorized by the school system by way of mandate. But one is actually intrusive. A shot is intrusive. A vaccination is intrusive. A mask is not. So why the different line of thinking as it relates to mask uh, and not that same line of thinking as it relates to the vast vaccination mandates that have been around since 1851? Great questions. I think we need to take two separate questions here that are there. One, you want to make sure that you're doing all of these decisions, whatever they are, through established procedures. You want to make sure that if it's something that requires an act from the state legislature that you actually do that. You don't want to necessarily have governors who are in faraway state capitals just executing, uh, issuing executive orders willy-nilly without respect to the facts on the ground. So sure. I think that you and I would, would, would agree with that. Yep. With respect to the other vaccines, I would note that we've had decades of evidence on the effectiveness of the polio vaccine, for example, before we required it for public school students. I'm vaccinated. I'm boosted. I'm comfortable taking this stuff. Yeah. Nonetheless, this is still an experimental drug, an experimental treatment, rather. So I think that we shouldn't be too gung-ho about requiring that people inject themselves with this if but they we, have some But we're not talking about that, Professor. We're still talking about the comparison of mask mandates, not vaccine mandates for COVID, but mask mandates in schools. You, you may have an issue with COVID-19 mandates. That's fine. Uh, I can argue that the science has been around for 22 years uh, in that, that's used in the COVID-19 vaccinations, and it has been tested thoroughly and even more so than many of the other vaccinations, in particular polio uh, in the United States. And, and polio was a disaster in the first two years of its rollout. Uh, and I'm sure you know the science on that, but we've accepted it as normative. So when it comes to masks, masks are non-intrusive. Um, I go, I still speak in high schools. I still speak in elementary schools. And when they thought they had a grip on it, right? People were coming back to the classrooms. I was in those schools and I was speaking to students. They had their distance. They had their mask on. And I got to tell you, brother, not one school classroom that I spoke to had a problem wearing a mask. I did not see people taking it off. I did not see young people fiddling with it. None of that. I mean, they were well behaved. Okay. So I don't get the logic of saying, 
school systems have the power to enforce these other mandates, dress codes, um, other mandates as it relates to vaccines, but they don't have the authority or somehow they're wrong for saying wear a mask for right now for the sake of public policy and health. I don't disagree with that point. I think that it's established law that school boards have the authority or school districts or whoever's making the relevant decision to have the authority to require masks. I'm saying that in my view, requiring masks in K through 12 school children just doesn't pass the cost benefit test when you think all things are considered. I'm not saying it's illegal. I'm just not sure it's expedient policy. All right. Well, I do disagree with you on that point. I do think it the benefit far outweighs the uh, discomfort momentarily. Uh, and children are very adaptable. They can become accustomed to environments very quickly. Uh, and 52% of parents are for um, the school system having these mandates. Only 28% of uh, parents of school-aged children oppose them. Uh, the others are indifferent to it, but they would like the school system to make the choice themselves and not executive orders, like you said. Uh, let's talk about inflation. Uh, inflation is happening in the United States of America. Give me your thoughts about that. Uh, you are the PhD in economics here. Too much purchasing power, chasing too few goods. In some ways, we haven't really advanced uh, any beyond what Milton Friedman taught us decades and decades ago. On the one hand, we have lots of boosts to demand. Normally, government spending fiscal policy doesn't do all that much to boost demand, but I think that the COVID direct checks are an exception to that. I think that those probably had an effect. Of course, you had extraordinary monetary policy by our central bank, lots of liquidity in the system. Add that to the supply constraints, transportation, gridlocks, all other sorts of problems with the supply chains and the predictable consequences, prices go up. You know, brother, I agree with virtually 100% of what you just said. The problem in the narrative is that individuals would like to be not authentic in their argument and debate about it, where they would like to blame Biden, right? Well, you can't lay this solely at the, at the feet of Biden because uh, while I disagree with some of his policy positions, he has attempted to do things in order to ease the burden of inflation in the United States. And yes, the number one catalyst for inflation is basically a supply chain issue. And that supply chain issue, it takes a process to get that right. And inflation uh, also carries kind of a natural reset uh, in the American economic system. Uh, And you see some of that reset happening. Why do you think conservatives are so quick to forget about the four years of Donald Trump and how inflation takes time to set in And they squarely blame Biden for the inflation issues that actually started to permeate during the Trump administration. Sure. I think everybody does it, if we're being honest. I think conservatives do it. I think that liberals do it. I think that too many people have this expectation that the president of the United States, whoever that person happens to be, has direct control over these things like inflation, like gas prices, these ordinary 10-cent things that mean so much to ordinary Americans that are really due to global economic forces that are very difficult for anyone, even someone as powerful as the president of the United States, to control. I would like to see us as a nation have a more realistic perspective on what the president can and can't do about the economy. Yeah, and to Biden's credit, he did release the reserve on the gas thing to try to ease the cost, uh, dropping the bucket, you know. Professor, always a pleasure having you on the program, man. Thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you. For today's Wednesday update video, we're doing a few very important searchlight updates. Both of them pretty troubling in terms of what they're pointing towards, but let's go ahead and jump into this. Getting started with the case of Andrew Gosden, a case that we covered way back in 2017, 
Andrew actually had already been missing for about 10 years at that point. Missing from Doncaster, South Yorkshire, England. Let's go ahead and get the latest updates on this. You might remember he's a young man who pulled some money out of an account. And when he was supposed to be going to school, um, went on a trip of some kind. And we have footage right here from a train station, a CCTV footage of him walking out of the train station. Uh, of course, this raises questions. Where was he going? Why did he pull? I think he pulled uh, 200 pounds, if I remember correctly. What was the intent of that? What was he going to do with that money? Um, and one of the fears in seeing a situation like this, is there possibly some level of grooming that had been going on with someone reaching out to him online and had enticed him to come and meet with them or something along those lines? Unfortunately, with the latest developments, that possibility gains a little more traction. Uh, starting here at BBC.com, Andrew Gosden from Doncaster was last seen on the 14th of September 2007 at the age of 14. Now, two men ages 38 and 45, were arrested on suspicion of kidnap and human trafficking in London. Both have since been released under investigation. Now, those aren't the only charges. The older man, the 45-year-old, also arrested on suspicion of possessing indecent images of children. Um, we were already in very scary territory when we're talking about a case of this age, but just this leg of the investigation turning in this direction uh, I'm sure is terrifying for the family to think about. I know as soon as several of you were reaching out to me, hey John, have you seen this update? It just goes to a very dark place uh, to think of what Andrew might have been facing if we are talking about a trafficking situation here. Both men were arrested on the 8th of December. Um, they've since been released but the investigation isn't done yet. We will touch on that in a moment. It's believed that these are the first arrests to actually happen in the case. Uh, so let's go ahead and see what else is happening around this over at the star.co.uk. Uh, police have seized a number of devices from the two men and expect that analysis of those devices is going to take between six and 12 months. And of course, with that charge that we talked about of indecent images, um, if they do find any of that, I'm pretty sure that the older of the two men is going to get rearrested fairly quickly. Um, of course, there's a possibility. I mean, do they find pictures of Andrew in, in all this? Uh, it's, it's, it's terrible. And of course, his family already making some comments, asking for privacy, um, but putting some comments out there to the public so that we kind of understand what they're going through at this time. Andrew's dad, Kevin, said he had been unable to sleep after receiving the latest news, I just couldn't sleep all night. We just don't know what to think about the latest development. He said he felt like he had when Andrew first went missing when that latest development was announced. And what we're hearing from them, we'll actually look at a tweet that uh, they sent out through the official uh, Twitter account. But uh, let's continue here. Senior investigating officer, Detective Inspector Andy Knowles said that the police priority at this time supporting Andrew's family while they work through this new line of inquiry in the investigation. Uh, so this is the tweet that I mentioned from the at Andrew underscore Gosden account on Twitter. Please follow it if you don't already. I've been following it for years. Um, a message for all of you from Andrew's dad. Firstly, please accept our apologies for not responding more individually, but we are overwhelmed with messages at the moment. D.I. Andy Knowles made us aware of the arrests made in London 
on December 8th, 2021. But we have not shared this because we have no factual information in addition to the police statement and would not wish to prejudice the investigations being carried out in any way. Essentially, they're saying all that they know about this is what we're seeing in the newspaper. They don't have any additional information. We understand that police investigations will take several months to complete. So until that is the case, we do not know what to think and do not wish to speculate on any possible outcome. We cannot add to the information in the public domain, but would like to thank the media, general public, and the charity Missing People for their support at this time and over the past years of our search for answers about what happened to Andrew. We have carried the burden of not knowing for many years and recent potential developments represent a more intensified period of this emotional journey for us. I just want to really let that sink in. Um, it's, it's terrifying to think of one of the fears that you had that maybe wasn't so big. Now we're starting to see indicators that that fear might be worth considering more. I just, I can't imagine what they're going through. So we hope you understand how difficult this time is for us as a family and wish to thank you for your support and prayers. And please, please do send both their way. Kevin signed January 11th, 2022. Here's a photo of Kevin from another tweet at the Missing Andrew Gostin page. Uh, of course, all the contact information he's talking about, we're gonna have in the description box down below. Also down there, a link to their website Help us to find andrew.weebly.com. Just in case you can't remember that website name, jump down into the description box down below. Click it now, bookmark it. Um, they're doing a very good job of keeping this page up to date with latest developments. And thoughts from the family. This uh, gray box here, click here for an important message, is essentially the same statement that I just read to you that was posted on the Twitter account as well. When Andrew went missing, he was five foot three inches tall slim with light brown hair with brown eyes on which he wore strong prescription glasses he would now be 28 years old but his family have said he could be easily identified by an unusual double ridge on his right ear so let's keep all eyes ears and hearts open and looking for andrew our next update is on the case of jason landry uh, a case that i can't help but feel close to after um, speaking to his father. If you saw the previous episodes, we kind of did our traditional searchlight. Then his father, Kent, got in touch with us. Uh, I hooped in Ed Denzel from the Unfound podcast. We worked together to present more information that Kent was giving us directly. Uh, Kent has been in touch. I've been in touch with Kent over this past year several times. I spoke to him last just a few weeks ago. Uh, some developments have happened around this in terms of information coming out from the authorities. And initially I was confused and maybe a little angry about the information because I'm not sure what value it's serving uh, or what purpose it's, it's there for. It's kind of a weird spot for me to be in because in many cases I look for law enforcement and hope that they would release more information. And in this case, they're, they're kind of doing what I'm asking for problem I'm having with it is kind of the analysis of the information that's coming with it. And that's what I'm questioning. Why is this helpful? If you're going to release the information, put the files out there. Let, let the news reporters comment on it. Let the public analyze it for themselves, come to their own uh, determinations. Not exactly what's happening with this information. So it's, it's a weird thing because on one side, I'm thankful that they're doing something uh, to once again help re-raise exposure to this case in a pretty significant way. I mean, when you release all the body cam footage from the scene of the accident, 
that's going to get attention. When you release the 911 call from the first person to come across the car, of course, that's going to get some media play as well. And that those things are happening. But there's just this question. I, I think you guys will get a sense of it once we start talking about the details here just a little bit. Over at fox7austin.com, officials have now released never-before-seen video and police audio as the search continues for Landry. Captain Jeff Ferry of the Caldwell County Sheriff's Office has spent countless hours analyzing footage, uh, including body cam footage. There was footage also that Kent had taken of him arriving on the scene, and from the notes I'm seeing, I believe that footage has now kind of been released publicly. Uh, he shared it with us privately before, um, but that footage has now been released publicly as well. If you guys want to see it for yourself, of course, hit the links in the description box down below. Let's let's continue here. The Jason Landry case is certainly a mystery, right? What happened to Jason Landry? Where is Jason Landry now? All signs point to us that he is um, under the influence. Um, and we know that he's going to get in the car and try to navigate his way to Missouri City, um, where his parents are not expecting him. He was not due home he was going to hang out with buddies, uh, play video games, and get high. The, the problem that I'm having with the information that's coming out in his analysis is he's looking at this like he's doing a DUI investigation, right? So one of the videos that they now have is there was a friend of Jason's that uh, Jason had FaceTimed with. And the friend thought, oh, my God, Jason's so messed up. I'm going to record this and show it back to him. And so I, so I could say, hey, dude, look how messed up you were. So the police now have that footage. They have their analysis of it. They don't have audio from it. So they're relying on what the friend says in terms of what the conversation is. And we'll, we'll get to some of that here. Um, but they're, like, talking about, oh, look how sweaty his armpits are. Uh, it's pretty clear he's under the influence. He's sitting inside. Why are, why are his armpits that sweaty? He's been on... FaceTime for 30 minutes. Why? I mean, I don't know. It's Texas. I mean, when I lived in California, I would be inside. And uh, even with AC in certain places there, it, it could be extremely warm. Like, yes, your, your armpits do sweat. I don't think that's exactly a telltale sign that he's under the influence. Now, admittedly, we're combining that with his friend thinking that he's so messed up, he's not going to remember what's going on. Uh, we've got this language from Captain Ferry uh, saying that, hey, we know he's about to get in the car and he's going he's gonna to try to drive his way. So I see that in two ways. Is it an important consideration? Sure. Were we already concerned about the fact that he might be under the influence of some kind? Yes, because we know that there was marijuana found on the scene. So does this change all that much for the public in terms of perception? Um the only way I see is not really helpful necessarily to the actual investigation. Um, and, and guys, this is a thing that I, I deal with constantly when we're looking into cases. And I know that sometimes the family doesn't want to come out with all the details because they're worried that the public is going to, to decide not to help them. Or maybe, you know, the GoFundMe isn't going to be as successful or the volunteer search efforts aren't going to be as successful. And there's a stark reality to that. There are a lot of people that are going to write off these cases because of personal feelings or biases they have regarding drug use, gender preference, um, employment. I mean, all kinds of different reasons, right? So I, I understand that. 
the problem I'm having is this additional information first isn't really backed up by anything solid. If you're saying, okay, he was doing psychedelics as well, okay, where's that container? Did you guys find that container in his, in his backpack? Is the assumption that he left his vehicle, left his weed behind, left his clothes behind, but he just went off with his shrooms or whatever you guys think he was doing. There's just also just this, just feels like judgmental, just watching the way that they're doing this analysis. And, oh, he's, they, they keep talking about the fact that Jason's talking about spiritual enlightenment. And I just want to say, like, hold the phone for a second. We got a young man in college, might be smoking weed, might be experimenting with other drugs, talking about spiritual enlightenment, like, is that completely unheard of? And I just want to echo the same feelings that Kent has been putting out there for a year. Kent was very honest right from the start. Hey, look, he's a college kid. Is he going to be experimenting, trying some stuff that he's not going to be talking to his parents about? Maybe. They were, they were open to that from the start. So I don't know how routing this information uh, and it seems like the family is just as surprised about it when it comes out this way. Um, I just don't know how it's helpful necessarily outside of, yes, you got the media's attention. Yes, there's a new run of articles. These articles would have happened anyway without that analysis if you just would have released the raw materials and then other people would have been able to come to their own determinations about that. Do I think anyone necessarily would look at that video and the first thing in their mind is, oh my God, that, that kid's all hopped up on drugs or something like that. Not from the clips I'm seeing. Like that's, and guys, I live in this type of, in these stories, these real occurrences on practically a day-to-day -day basis. And uh, I'm very honest with you when I see stuff. When we were talking about the Bowman case, I was honest with you guys. Hey, I'm seeing some footage of this guy and I, I feel like there's something else at play here. Uh, at least, and they're not, I haven't seen the whole video, but from what they're showing me, I can't look at that video and say, yeah, he's certainly high here. There's, there's something he's being out of character because you've got these other things to compare it to and, and it doesn't fit. They obviously have more information than I do, but it's just, it's, it's a question. I've never been stuck in this spot before where I'm hoping that more information comes out that could be helpful to the case. More information comes out. And I don't feel like it's necessarily helpful. Do I think that it's going to ding the possibility? Like if, you know, if Kent says, hey, we want to get some volunteer searchers together. Do I think that this information being out there in this way is going to hurt those efforts? I kind of do. Um, I don't know. I'm struggling with it. But uh, let me know what you guys think about it in the, in the comments down below. Let's get back to the information that uh, they kind of analyzed and, and found here. Another big point where his parents are not expecting him. Uh, I've, I've spoken to Kent and the, the feeling I get about it is it wouldn't have been a big deal for Jason to show up without his parents knowing that he was coming that weekend. It just, it's not that big of a deal. Is, is that completely unheard of? It kind of sounds like the way this analysis is coming out, the captain Ferry saying, Oh, he wasn't going to go see his parents at all. He was going to go get high with his friends and play video games. Okay. How does that get volunteers to a field to search for this young man? Because that's the expectation that even Captain Ferry is putting out in this video. He's being extremely clear. We don't think that there is some criminal element to this. We think he's out there. 
and and even the efforts that they're taking i'm seeing i mean back in october it was reported that they're using drone footage and they're analyzing the drone footage of course the tools for doing that are looking for unnatural colors we know that he removed all his clothing so you're probably not it's probably not going to be very successful so what's it going to take what are the actual things that are going to help this case probably going to be either legit searches with organizations like Texas EquiSearch, people that know what they're doing out there, or the next best thing, volunteer searches, people boots on ground, one step at a time, looking for any signs of Jason. And guys, I was very clear uh, when I, the last time I spoke to Ken a few weeks ago, I was clear with him about that as well. He was asking me about different possibilities and different things that he should be trying. And I was like, Ken, I would be so focused if I was in your shoes I would be absolutely 100% focused on more search efforts in that area. Because to Captain Ferry's point, there's just, there's nothing to indicate that he left the area. So even thinking about churning up the kind of news cycle on this, like what are we hoping for? Are we hoping that there was another person that drove by that happened to see something, um, like, you know, what, what, who is the intended person? Like if we were in a dream scenario, who's the person that could be watching this or, or even watching this right now that would get into the game on this case and actually help progress it forward. For me, it's people that live in the area that are willing to try to help when more volunteer efforts are mounted or people willing to go to a GoFundMe to help raise money for more efforts, more search efforts, things of that nature. Ultimately, help us understand how it's helpful to the case. And I think that's just really where this segment and um, this interview with Captain Ferry seems to fall short. Now, please keep in mind, I know I, I work in this type of thing here as well. It's not his whole interview either, right? It's been edited for a new segment. And I can tell you guys, after being edited myself, some things are presented to be put out there looking specific ways. Um, so there's that possibility as well. I don't want to say, hey, this guy's a big jerk. Look at what he's doing here. Because I'm sure that interview, that could have been a one-hour interview. We're seeing three or four minutes of it here. So I, I have to put it out there with a – I don't know. I'm just trying to understand it for myself because I really – there's an emotional component where I'm like – I was excited to see there were some developments. I'm like, all right, good. There's there's something going on with this case. What is it? And then I get into it, and it's like, wait. We were already at a spot of thinking this young man was likely under the influence. Admittedly, most of us thought it would be marijuana, right? Um, now we're thinking, okay, he was under the influence, but it was a much harsher drug. And by the way, he shouldn't have been driving because he knew he was messed up. Like, there's just, that's what, it feels like there's this finger-pointing little bit of victim blaming aspect to it and it's i just how is it helpful i, I keep having to ask uh landry's internet activity in the minutes leading up to his disappearance are also discussed by um captain ferry landry's googling how long can you live in the woods without food or how long can you go in the wilderness this stuff extremely interesting and possibly helpful but in the way that all it's doing is reaffirming what we've been thinking all along, we need more searches in that area. So like I see if you're doing this analysis and now you're saying, Hey, look, we have him literally Googling how long can I live without food in the wilderness? And they're saying this is moments leading up to his disappearance. So he's like 
either he's literally driving around doing this or is it right after the crash and he's doing this kind of search? Um, I don't know. They say he's also looking up some spiritual enlightenment practices. He's looking up different strains of marijuana and different ways to combine those. Um, which, once again, if we think that he's a harder drug user than marijuana, it's just, it's weird. I, I don't know where the assumption that there's other drugs at play necessarily comes from, but here's, here's the next part. He's looking up different, and he's talking about psychedelics and how they have impacted his life and his perception of spiritual awakening. awakening. Um, hold on a second, because if you're saying it's his Internet activity, is he making comments? Are you saying that he like went to Facebook and talked about psychedelics have impacted his life? That's not a search necessarily. That's a statement. So how would you know that? Like, unless is he searching on something that obvious? Like how have psychedelics, why do I feel like this on psychedelics or, or something like that? It's, I don't know. There's, there's a lot more detail that would help with us understanding something that ultimately I don't think is very important in terms of this missing persons investigation. Barry says he doesn't believe anything nefarious happened to Landry. Okay. So what is all this? What does Kent think all this is? Uh, let's, let's run a few clips here. If for any individual, myself included you or anyone else, and the government felt it would appropriate to release our weirdest searches that we ever Googled in recent time, what would it look like for each of us? It would probably look pretty odd. So that would be my question is, why would you do that? I mean, he's making an excellent point. I can tell you that when true crime creators get together, it's kind of like a little, it's weird to call it a joke, but it's something that we all certainly talk with. Uh, with each other about like, hey, imagine if someone came investigating me and pulled up my Google search history. Do you know what that looks like with, with the type of work that we do? And we, we all have an understanding of that. Uh, but even outside of, of that circle, uh, I think he makes a great point. He goes further in this next piece over at KXAN. As a former lawyer, I've never seen uh, law enforcement assassinate the character of a victim. That's what Jason is, whether or not you know, he smoked pot. So there you have it. Pretty plain in terms of how Kent's presenting it. And I have to tell you guys, we on the channel all the time, we see families that come out at law enforcement, usually a few months into a missing persons investigation, and start talking to the press and, and kind of talking bad about law enforcement. I haven't really seen that here. I think Kent has been extremely patient. I think he's been diligent in terms of his efforts. Uh, even in how he's laying out this, if you can call it critical commentary, I, th I think he's being pretty straightforward about his feelings on this. Uh, he's still not slamming law enforcement necessarily. He's just pointing out some things that I think many of us would agree with and consider, hey, you know, if you're going to look in people's Google search, you're, you're going to see some weird stuff. And why are we attacking Jason's character at this point? Back to my question, how does that help the investigation? Think about what you thought about this investigation before I started talking about it today and what you think about it now. What has changed? Young man went driving. We think he could have been under the influence. There was an accident. 
he left the vehicle for some reason, search efforts need to be done in that area. Like it's, it's just the same. So I don't know. Um, here at KXAN, they're saying this caught the family off guard. According to Jason's father, Kent, they weren't told anything was being released. So they didn't even know about this information being released. I don't know where some of that stuff came from. We haven't even seen some of those videos. So some of the stuff that was released wasn't stuff that the family was even aware of. They hadn't seen it before. Um, probably the body cam footage, I imagine, because from what I understand, the whole release includes, I think, over an hour of on-scene footage from uh, the, the body cam. Thankfully, it looks like there is some developments in terms of hopefully other resources that will be brought in, maybe even a fresh set of eyes. The Caldwell County Sheriff's Office said it's expecting to meet with Attorney General Ken Paxton's office in the coming weeks to request assistance with the case. What are they going to be able to do? We're hopeful that the Attorney General's Office newly formed Missing Persons Unit agrees to take this case on, said an email from the Sheriff's Office sent to the media. That might, like one of the things I was considering uh, when I was thinking about everything that I've seen that was put out in, in that video and all the their analysis was I got the feeling that they were kind of like not tired of the case, but they wanted to tell you about their conclusions and why they're not going to do much with it anymore. Like, that's kind of what it felt like. I think that's where Kent is feeling like, hey, there's this kind of victim blaming aspect. It almost feels like the sheriff's office is trying to make a justification to the public about, yeah, this is this is why this isn't on our top priority list, let's just say. And now we're hearing, hey, we're hopeful that this other office is essentially going to take this thing over. Just, just take it off our hands. And honestly, maybe that wouldn't be the worst thing. Here's a comment from Kent. We would just like a new set of eyes to look at what happened. I think so. And uh, ultimately, I think we got to get more boots on ground, more volunteer services, um, more searches out there. So I don't know, guys. It's uh, it's a bit of a weird one. I, I appreciate the attempt at, at raising the exposure. I think releasing the information in a case of this nature like it's probably not going to be super risky because I don't think there's some criminal element to it or, or anything like that. Or if there is, probably wouldn't necessarily be hurt by, you know, oh, they're releasing body cam footage. They're releasing footage that Kent took the next morning when he was walking the scene. You know, they're, they're showing the ping trail of the cell phone. Like that kind of stuff I don't think would have any type of information that would lose them a court case if they wound up having to prosecute someone. So... I appreciate the information coming out, um, the analysis that came with it, the, the tone that came with that analysis, how that affected the family, and hearing that ultimately it sounds like the sheriff's office is trying to wipe their hands of this, a little harder to appreciate that from where I'm sitting. But what do you guys think? Let's talk about it in the comments down below. As always, I'll keep you up to date on any developments with these cases. Uh, and I feel like I should probably reach out to Kent and just uh, send him another virtual hug. Don't know what else to do at this point. Thank you so much, everyone. Really appreciate that you care about these cases like I do. I'll be back on Friday with a brand new mystery for you right here on the Lord and Arts channel. His birthday came February 8th. My whole world crashed because it's not just him. He's a twin. So how can I celebrate a birthday with one and I brought two in this world. That was Lisa Patterson.
mother of missing person, Yair West, talking about how she can't even really celebrate the birthday of his twin brother appropriately because she's wondering what happened to her son. He's been missing for over five years at this point. The media circled around this story a little bit early on, but it has really seemed to trail off over the years. I think it's time that we help bring some attention back to Yair's case. I think it's time that we turn on the searchlight. Brain Scratch Searchlight. I'm John Lorden. Thank you so much for caring about these cases like I do. And today we're looking into the disappearance of Yair West. Let's go ahead and get started at NamUs. Thankfully, there was already a profile created here. We can see we've got a picture of Yair James Samuel West, a black African-American male. Date of last contact, December 9th, 2016. We are now over the five-year mark. Missing from Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, at the age of 28, he would currently be 33 years old. Uh, stands at about six foot two, weighs around 230 pounds. For the circumstances, uh, last known leaving work at Outback Steakhouse in Wilkes-Barre Township at about 4:30 in the afternoon when his work shift ended. West left work by foot. He was last observed on surveillance video on Cole Street by Corner News at around 6.30. And there's even some questions about um, why it would take him that long to walk from one location to the other. We're going to see that there was actually a stop in the middle of that, and that actually adds a little distance. We'll get into all those details. Hair color, black, uh, dreadlock, shorter uh, shoulder length. So kind of like this photo that's under me right now. Um, he, he does have dreads. I know some of the photos that we're showing, he's got his hair cut much shorter, but at the time that he went missing, that's how it looked. Facial hair description, goatee, which once again, some of the photos like we're seeing down below me right now, he doesn't have that. Uh, and eye color brown. In terms of distinctive physical features, there's a scar under his right eye. I don't know if that really comes up in the photos. Uh, also burn marks on his right and left forearms from working as a grill cook. He actually had two jobs at the time, uh, and both of them were as a cook. For clothing and accessories, we do have a description here. Black pinstripe chef pants, uh, black croc shoes, black socks, a blue sweatshirt, and black skull cap. We actually also have a photo from the last time he was seen. This is from the surveillance footage. We can see the ATM is right there to his left. I'm not 100% sure that that's the ATM he actually used. And I'm not 100% sure if this is surveillance footage from that last location we know or from the middle location. Uh, we'll, we'll get to, to all that as we roll forward here. But that's about it for the case information. Really nothing else outside of this photo and another photo of him here. We can see here he's got his dreads kind of pulled back a little bit or, or slung over his shoulder. So um, that might be a, another way that you see him if you do spot him out there somewhere. Uh, in terms of contact information, 
they don't have an investigator entered here at NamUs, but from what I'm seeing, Detective Casey is the person that you want to talk to. We're going to have the general number that you see on the screen here. That'll be in the description box down below, but we're also going to have a direct number to Detective Casey. There is an agency case number, of course. You want to just reference that, especially if you're calling into the main line to let them know what case you're talking about. If you need to remain anonymous for any reason, Pennsylvania does also have a Crime Stoppers program. I'm going to include that number in the information down below as well. But what about the details of this case? We're going to jump over to my friend Megan's website, The Charlie Project, to get a little more detail about what's going on here. West was last seen after he left work at Outback Steakhouse in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania on December 9th, 2016. He walked two miles to Corner News, a convenience store on Cole Street, stopping to make a purchase at Wegmans on the way. The security cameras showed him at Corner News at 640, so it looks like Megan answered the question I had about that photo. He withdrew uh, $200 from an ATM there. He's never been heard from again. Prior to his disappearance, Wes had stopped using his cellular phone because an ex-girlfriend was calling him on it. He got another phone to replace it, but it isn't clear if he ever activated it, and his family doesn't know the number for it. A few interesting questions around this. Uh, I've noticed some people talking about it on the discussion threads over at Web Sleuths, and Reddit actually has a bit of a longer thread going on around this case. Uh, first question is, why would you ditch a cell phone um, because an ex-girlfriend was calling you on it? It's just so easy to block numbers nowadays. Uh, I don't know if maybe it wasn't a smartphone, maybe it was like a prepaid phone, didn't have a whole bunch of services on it, or maybe because it was a prepaid phone, he figured it's easy to just get rid of that whole thing and get a completely new number. But then that leads to kind of the next question. I understand if he wanted to change his number so that his ex-girlfriend couldn't call him anymore, but who was he talking to using the new phone? Wouldn't they have the phone number? Because it seems like that would be a pretty important piece of information for an investigation like this. Police might be able to use that phone number, try to go for the records on it, try to see where it pinged, try to see if they could get some trail of, of his movements. Did, he, did that phone leave the area? Was there a particular time where that phone stopped connecting to the network? A lot of questions that could be answered if that phone could be identified. But at least from everything that I'm seeing here that's been released publicly, it's just a big question mark. Some of these uh, accounts are even confused if there was an additional phone. Uh, Megan's coverage here, she seems pretty certain there was another phone. I'm seeing some information where they're not quite sure he had a phone on him. Um, of course, really sad to hear that he's leaving behind two children as well. And his mother doesn't believe he would have left without telling anyone. His case remains unsolved. So where is this taking place? Uh, and I know we talked about some locations there. We're going to get to the map right after this. Uh, Wilkesbury is a city in the U.S. state of Pennsylvania and the county seat of Luzerne County, located at the center of the Wyoming Valley. It had an estimated population of over 44,000 people in 2020. Uh, Wilkesbury and the surrounding Wyoming Valley are framed by the Pocono Mountains to the east, the Endless Mountains to the north and west, and the Lehigh Valley to the south. The Susquehanna River flows through the center of the valley and defines the northwestern border of the city. That river also become, becoming a little bit of a point of conversation in this case as we roll forward. But let's take a look at the map and talk about the locations that we know about. Uh, Outback Steakhouse, one of his jobs located right over here, and that's at 547 
Arena Hub Plaza. Uh, his next job at Smoky Bones is on Monday Street, which is actually fairly close. We see Smoky Bones right here, out back right here, uh, just a few blocks away. Now, the location where we know he went is, uh, we know he went to Corner News and Laundry. That's the location he was last seen at. And that's where the ATM pull of $200 happens. Another little important fact about that, that wasn't all the money that he had available to him. He still left about $600 in his account. Um, and we know that there was an additional stop that happened at Wegmans. I wasn't sure what Wegmans was. We don't have that around here. Uh, so I did a little look up. Basically, it's like kind of like a supermarket, pharmacy, uh, liquor store. There's all kinds of stuff, all kinds of services there. Um, so I, we don't know exactly why he stopped there. There's a per, some type of purchase that he made there. We don't know what that purchase was. But the two-mile estimate that we keep hearing about between his job at Outback Steakhouse and the Corner News and Laundry is a straight shot. Actually, if you're walking up Monday Street and kind of, um, I think it actually kicks up even to Wilkes-Barre Boulevard here. That's a two-mile route. If you actually include this extra stop at Wegmans, that pulls him on a completely route down here, and the total distance for that is closer to three. It's 2.7 miles. And we can see by Google's estimation of walking speed, uh, that's almost an hour, just in terms of walking. And we don't know how much time is being spent at Wegmans. We don't know how much time is being spent at Corner News and Laundry. Um, his mother has a question about this because... The time period from when his job ended to when we know he's at Corner News and Laundry is two hours. So even taking this walking path, that's only one hour of it. There's another hour that somehow gets burned in this timeline, and we don't know where. But like I said, I mean, did he stop at Wegmans? Did he get something to eat? Was he shopping? I, there's just there's uh, there's no answers for those questions at this point. But there is a little bit of a mystery in what happens in that hour. We do pick him up at the corner news. And then, of course, we have no idea where he's he's gone since then. Over at pahomepage.com from February 13th, 2017, family and friends of a missing man from Wilkes-Barre are still holding out hope. Meanwhile, his two young children are left wondering when their father is coming home. But no one has any answers. Detective Charles Casey told Eyewitness News this is an active investigation and he continues to conduct interviews. Anyone with information about this case should give him a call at the Wilkes-Barre Police Department. Once again, those numbers are in the description box down below. I'm sure you could also get them by using the number that's on the screen. Um, also, kind of just a little thing I noticed here. There is... Some contact. Obviously, we have a detective talking to the news at this point. There's a few other articles I see where they're kind of reaching out for comment, and they're not really getting much communication from the police department. Um, and admittedly, you know, some of these these articles kind of hit the typical missing persons. It's been a year. Is there any update? So, I mean, it, it's it's not unheard of that sometimes law enforcement doesn't get back. And of course, you're working with timeframes of the writers. Uh, on these articles as well. So if law enforcement gets back a day late, then, you know, that note just stays in the article forever that they didn't get back in time. Um, but here at timesleader.com from April 3rd, 2017, we've got another picture here of Yair. Uh, the silence 
is what puzzles Lisa Patterson. If he wanted to vanish, he would have told me. Even if he wouldn't have told her, if you wanted to vanish, wouldn't you have taken all the money out of your account? Like, I just, I don't know that that is a situation here. Of course, there's another way of vanishing uh, that I know some people are considering with this case, and one of the tips might be looking in that direction as well. Is there some form of self-harm here? Uh, it's, it's kind of an interesting question about you're going to stop at an ATM and pull 200 bucks. Um, I don't know. He was scheduled to work a double shift that Friday, walking from the outback as he usually did to Smoky Bones, a short distance away on Monday Street. But he didn't show up for his second job, and Patterson has only been able to follow his trail for a few hours that night. There's two versions of this here, uh, of, of what happens in those hours. Um, here at Times Leader, I'm not sure. I really wish they would have told us the source for this information. Um, I don't know when his second job started. We looked at the map. You saw how close those two locations were to each other. Is he really going to burn an hour, especially taking the route he did, walking over to an ATM, ultimately, if he has to be back at Smoky Bones to start a shift? I mean, even if he had to start that shift a few hours later, if he just needed an ATM and to do some shopping, isn't there other areas around here? I mean, let's take a look at the satellite map here. Uh, we got an Outback Steakhouse. I mean, we've got a, a mall right up here. Uh, we've got shopping all around this area. There's ATMs all over this place. Uh, Panera Bread right across the street. I don't know what he couldn't have bought in this area that would make him take this walk, um, go to the Wegmans supermarket effectively, and then after that, walk over to Corner News and Laundry. Uh, honestly... Even that step, like if he needed an ATM, I mean, tell me that they don't have an ATM here. Like, what's the purpose for this last length, getting him to corner news and laundry? Why is that the location where he decides that he needs to pull cash? Um, just so many questions with this case. Now, it does note here that his mother is saying he was a little depressed over a relationship Seems like that's probably the relationship with the ex-girlfriend that we heard about previously. Uh, and he stopped using the cell phone that an ex-girlfriend was calling him on. The mothers of West's children, so there's two separate mothers. Uh, his children are a boy and a girl. They provided some pieces of the puzzle on his travels during a two-hour period that starts at the Outback and ends at Corner News on Cole Street just a little bit of a strange indicator here. His mom's even saying it in a quote. They did the legwork. Um, I'm not sure why that's not an investigator that kind of routed out that information. It could be that they doubled up work that the investigator did do. Um, I would like to know, like, you know, the picture of him at Corner News. Was that prompted by the mother of his children finding that location and then telling police about it and then police are going and asking for footage uh, or did they speak to the owner of that business and source that footage you know get that picture of him in some way it's just it's it's an interesting aspect to this story because of course with missing persons investigations uh, we're always wondering you know what are the steps law enforcement's taking and the families are always wondering is law enforcement doing enough? I mean, for more on that, see this week's Wednesday episode where we're talking about the Jason Landry case. Uh, but back to the article. Uh, 
they were able to determine he left work at 4.30 p.m. and he went to Wegmans where he made an undetermined purchase. Uh, he then showed up at the newsstand at 6.40 p.m., so honestly, a little more than two hours, two hours and ten minutes, where he withdrew $200 from the ATM. The store's surveillance camera caught images of West walking in wearing a blue shirt. So uh, we're, we're pretty certain now that it looks like that surveillance footage is from the Corner News store. There have been reported sightings in a car at Sherman Hills, in a car in Hazleton, but his mother, Patterson, has no confirmation that those sightings were actually her son. Uh, a new tip came in, and keep in mind this is back in 2017, this article. Uh, a new tip came in reporting that on the night of his disappearance, and I'm, he I'm hearing this reported two ways too, here it's saying that he jumped from the Black Diamond Bridge that spans the Susquehanna River. Uh, another version I'm hearing is that it was called in that someone jumped from the Black Diamond Bridge. Uh, it, it wasn't a person that was identified as being him. It's kind of the two different versions I'm hearing on this. Uh, let's take a look real quick. This is the Black Diamond Bridge. Uh, we can see its location here. If we bring up the map that we've been referring to with all the locations we know about, uh, it is actually it's a bit easier to identify when the water is marked up here. Uh, it would be further west and just a little bit north. It's this line right here that's going right over the Susquehanna River. It's a railway bridge. Based on these photos, uh, I don't know that it's made for walking on. I mean, there's certainly a wide enough area that you could go walking out. Um, it looks like kind of a serious wall that's along the side of it. You know, I'm sure someone determined can certainly get over the wall. But then another question is what's on the other side. Uh, looks like this is probably a pretty serious drop. I would say 40, maybe 50. Uh, I don't know. Looks Looks more around like 40 feet to me. Um, and, you know, would something like that be fatal? It's, I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. And of course, there's also, um, does the person that jumped in the river know how to swim is, is a big question as well. What happened when that tip got called in? Well, rescue teams from the city and Hanover Township investigated, but couldn't find anyone in the water. Uh, I'm not sure what the tide is like. I can tell you just from the pictures that I've seen of this, it looks like it's kind of a calmer water source. Um, of course, different times of year, different things can happen. I understand that. But uh, at least from the few photos I've seen of it, it doesn't look like, I mean, we're not talking raging rapids here. So if a search and rescue team did go out there, I think there'd be a pretty good chance that they would um, find items or a person if, if that was really out there. At pahomepage.com, another update from April of 2017. What about investigators? What's their approach with this? Investigators not ruling out foul play yet. West's family thinks he did encounter some bad people, and they just want answers. His mother says, I just want answers, good or bad, just answers. It's the only conclusion that I can come up with, she says. Uh, he's no longer with us. No words for four months and nothing from him. And of course, here we are five years after the fact, and we still don't know where Yair is. So uh, I think it's, it's hard to try to argue with his mother's assessment there. Also, 
it just it keeps sticking to my brain the fact that he went he pulls two hundred dollars he's got six hundred more that's sitting in that account I mean if he really wanted to disappear I just I can't imagine that he would why would you leave that behind you're gonna need money to get wherever you're going to eat get a room take care of yourself. Uh, Karina Mercandante is the mother of one of West's children, a child that she says is asking a lot of questions about her dad. Quote, she'll ask all the time. She thinks that her dad is just running away at this point because she's hearing bits and pieces. I try to keep it away from her as best as possible, but it's hard to do. West's family says he has no known enemies, and there wasn't any indication in the days leading up to his disappearance that he was in any kind of trouble. That is, except for one thing. And that one thing actually comes from Karina Mercandante. In an interview that I found over here from Eyewitness News WBRE on Facebook, she talks about another little piece of information that they found in their investigation. It was said that by a coworker that he was on the phone, on the Outback phone, stating that he was being hurt, like, leave me alone. I don't associate with yous. Um... Stop harassing me. Certainly sounds like conversation that could be happening with the ex-girlfriend, right? I mean, especially if his old phone number isn't working anymore. She knows where he works. Uh, she could call there, not say who she is, ask to get him on the phone. I mean, he can't change the phone number for Outback Steakhouse, obviously. But with the type of conversation that we're hearing here, could also be someone else. Could be something else that's going on here in his life that maybe his family doesn't know about. We certainly aren't aware of. Um, so it's interesting. You know, they're, they're kind of making a clear statement. We don't know of any enemies that he might have. But then we're also hearing right before his disappearance, he's having some type of tough conversation with someone from the company phone. Unfortunately, not a lot of developments after that initial push with the news media. The next update I found is from June 2019. Family begs for answers and closure two years after man goes missing. This over at fox56.com. His family is desperately searching for answers. Quote, he got murdered. He's murdered. My son is gone. I just want the closure, his mother Lisa Patterson said. He walked two miles without a cell phone. Here's, and this, this is a quote from her. So once again, I'm just kind of throwing out there. We were hearing, you know, some different versions of what's going on here. He was supposed to walk home and see his mom and two young children, but it just seems, but just seems to have vanished. So there we're hearing a different thing too, that doesn't necessarily um, not fit. I mean, it, it could be that his shift his second shift was starting a little bit later and he had enough time to actually walk, stop and do this shopping, stop at the ATM and that his plan was to stop at his mom's home and spend time with his kids there and then possibly go back to work after that. But to her point, quote, there's a two hour window from when West was at Outback to the corner store on Cole Street. It's not going to take you two hours to walk down the hill even with that extra stop that we've noted here, it's still not going to take you two hours. So it is kind of interesting to me that we have that one hour gap. No body has been found, and I don't believe they threw him in the Susquehanna River. I don't believe he fell in the Susquehanna River, West's grandmother, Bobby Patterson, said. I believe they took his body and threw it in the mines. 
At first, I didn't know what she was talking about here. I'm not so familiar with Pennsylvania. Apparently, there are a ton of coal mines in that area. So it seems like that that's what she's referring to. I'm not finding any information to really kind of point in that direction, but you've got a family member missing. You live in that area. You know that there's a bunch of mines around. Like, are you going to consider that possibility as well? I, I think so. Um, but just once again, I'm not, I'm not seeing anything that's really kind of, uh, leading us to, Hey, we need to start searching mines. I don't know if, you know, like a tip would come in that would point them in that direction, something like that. I'm, I'm not seeing any investigation steps that are kind of around that either. So I just want to be really cautious with that, but that's what his grandmother thinks. So, um, you know, families just try to understand this stuff. They, they try to stay open to all possibilities, possibilities that sometimes you and me and sometimes law enforcement would just easily dismiss. And you know what? These cases surprise us a lot with their outcomes and their turns. So who's to say it's not possible? Another article at fox56.com, this one from July 2019, about family and friends walking to raise awareness. Today, family and friends came together for an awareness walk through the streets of Wilkes-Barre. I just know he was loved and is still loved, said his mother, Lisa Patterson. They showed their love today as they carried heart balloons and signs begging for answers while wearing his favorite color, safety green. West's son was even wearing his dad's necklaces. To think uh, both those kids have gone without their father for over five years at this point and are saddled with the questions of what happened, where is he? Uh, just really, really tough on, on many fronts. Now, you guys know, as I look through the research on these episodes, I try to find the bright spots. There's an interesting thing that happens here that I wish we would see happen in many, many more states. Over at citizensvoice.com, missing persons group aims to help local families. This is from June of 2020. And here we have a picture of Lisa holding a photo of her missing son, Yair West. Uh, we can see we've got photos of people doing DNA tests. We've got NamUs information up on a, projected, a projection screen. What's going on with this event? As a slideshow of missing persons played on a video screen, state police took DNA samples from relatives and conducted interviews about those who vanished. Finding the missing was the main goal of a program conducted at Wilkes University that was hosted by the state police and the Luzerne County District Attorney's Office. What an amazing idea. What a great way to reach out and to just give a little dose of hope, a little bit of a hug to the families with missing loved ones. Like, I just... Why don't we have this happening all over the country? I don't know. Loved ones of missing people from throughout northeast Pennsylvania shuffled into the school student center to visit various stations set up to assist. They included one for criminal background databases, one for DNA testing, and one for conversations with detectives. Do you know how often I speak to these families because they're looking for some form of advice on some consideration or approach that they want to use? What a great thing for them to actually be able to sit down with someone that lives this 
I mean, I consider that I live these types of cases on a day-to-day basis. Detectives live these types of cases on a minute-to-minute basis. It's a fiber of their existence, basically. Their level of experience is at a completely different spot. But how do you get to have an open conversation with them like that? What a great forum. What a great thing to to happen. Um, I want to see it more. One of the booths was for NamUs, the National Missing and Unidentified Person System. It's a nationwide database associated with the U.S. Department of Justice. Of course, we know them very well here on the channel. They collect all information about the missing to help identify remains when they are found. They also collect uh, information on those unidentified remains so they could line that stuff up. How do they do that? In many cases, they need DNA. Amy Patterson, 53, of Academy Street in Wilkes-Barre, came to provide a DNA sample in case the body of her son, Yair West, is ever found. West's twin brother also provided a sample. Patterson said West, who was 28 when he disappeared, is missed by a loving family. I want to locate him. That's what I want, she said. Unfortunately, that is all the news that's out there on this case at this point. There is a Facebook group looking for Yair West. I'll have a link to that along with all the sources that we covered here today and a little bit more in the description box down below. There was a GoFundMe that was running for this case at one time. Uh, They've closed it. Uh, I wish it wasn't closed because I absolutely would have donated to this. Uh, But it is closed at this point. There is a web sleuth thread. It's not very long. It's just a handful of posts at this point. But there is a bit of a good conversation happening over at Reddit. Uh, So if you're looking for conversation outside of the comments here on YouTube, please, um, let's talk about this case in the comments down there. Let's share ideas about different methods that could be employed, um, different ways the family might be assisted in this. Those are the really important things that we want in these comments here, because there's a really good chance that one of those family members are going to come along this video, and maybe it's your idea that's going to help be that next step for them. But another conversation going on at Reddit. I'll have a link to that down below as well. If you need to remain anonymous, Pennsylvania Crime Stoppers, please don't let fear hold you back from doing something that would help change the world for a family. They're already dealing with a missing loved one. They're already dealing with the stark reality that he's probably never coming back. But they're also dealing with that with this big box of questions that is weighing on their backs for over five years. If you can help them with that, please do it. If you can't do it with your name and by calling the detective yourself, please get that information in to Pennsylvania Crime Stoppers here. Uh, While researching this, you know, I always take a look at cases before I cover them to see have they been covered on YouTube? What's the coverage like? Uh, There was only one other video that I found on this case, but I just wanted to call it out because it's by an up and coming YouTube true crimer. Uh, You know, when I was coming up, there wasn't a lot of help that was happening uh, around my growth. I want to be sure to change that for the next generation as they're coming up. So just a quick shout out to Gabrielle Ray. And I got to tell you guys, uh, her research, of course, I redid it all for myself. Her research, really, really good. Uh, Pretty much spot on. Uh, On top of that, something I really appreciate, look, she's got 
contact information for the department. She's got the agency case number. She's got her sources. Man. These are the types of true crime creators that we need to support. You can tell with the amount of work that she put into the research phase. This isn't someone that's just looking to be another talking head on YouTube. Um, so, Gabrielle, really good work. If you guys would please help her out. She's currently at 65 subscribers, guys. Get on the bandwagon early. Do you know how much I cherish the people that reach out to me? Hey, John, I've been subscribed since year one. Be one of those fans for Gabrielle, please. She, she really deserves it. And speaking about deserving it, this family deserves help. Please share this video with any friends, family, acquaintances you have in the Pennsylvania area. Let's get some eyes open, ears open, and hearts open looking for Yair West, trying to help his family find the answers that they all deserve to those questions they've been saddled with for so long. I mean, really, this... It's terrible. A big thank you to the supporters here. Uh, you know, for over six years, we've been doing these shows always with limited commercials. Sometimes, no commercials at all. Can't do that without support from some of you amazing brain scratchers out there. If you want to be part of that closer support team, go to lordandarts.com. Uh, a big thank you to new patrons, Tabitha, Justina, and Renfrey. Also, Little Kitty Cat increased her pledge. Thank you so much. At lordandarts.com, you can sign up for Patreon. You can sign up for PayPal or make a donation through that. Buy merchandise or even buy us a coffee like Candy Bishop recently did. We really appreciate your support as we try to help these families in these very tough situations. We can't do it without you guys, so thank you so much. Take care. Have a nice weekend. We'll see you back here on Monday with a brand new episode of Case Cracked on the Lord and Arts channel.